horse is a horse, of course, of course, and no one can talk to a horse, of course, that is, of course, unless the horse is the famous Mr. A. Go right to the source and ask the horse, he'll give you the answer that you endorse. He's always on a steady course. Talk to Mr. A. Humans have had a special bond with horses for thousands of years. The horses have been depicted in our ancestors' earliest cave drawings and remain a powerful part of the imagery of the American landscape. For today's Please Explain, we're talking to Wendy Williams, the author of a book called The Horse, The Epic History of Our Noble Companion. It's published by Farrah Strauss and Giroux. Very pleased to welcome her to our show today. Hello. Hi. And uh, we also always invite our listeners to join in the conversation during these Please Explain segments. You can call us at 212-433-9692. Write to us on our show page at WMIC.org or on Facebook or Twitter, where our handle is at Leonard Lopate. Wendy, uh, you write about the first carving of a horse some 35,000 years ago. Where was the carving found? Uh, this is absolutely fascinating. What I loved about it is the carving itself is absolutely beautiful. And it's a theme that's lasted for 35,000 years throughout art about horses. That beautifully arched neck and the um, head of the horse down, pointed down toward the ground is just so powerful. Um, this particular horse was found in Germany um, in a cave called Vogelherd. And uh, a number of other carvings were found there, too. This particular carving was made out of mammoth ivory, and it's very small. It's uh, only a few centimeters by a few centimeters, but it's just absolutely beautiful. So horses were in Europe 35,000 years ago? Yes. Horses actually evolved here in North America in the Western Hemisphere and spread out from there. But by the time of the Ice Age, which was 35,000 years ago, the modern horse had spread all over the planet, really. Uh, the only place I think there weren't modern horses by then was down in Antarctica, mostly because there was no way for the horses to get there. So why were there no horses in North America when the conquistadors came? That is an excellent question, and it confused scientists, including the venerable Charles Darwin, for a long, long time. Charles Darwin got a lot of headaches over answering this question. Um, people believed that horses actually evolved in Europe and Asia because there were none here when the explorers arrived. The reason for that is that horses became extinct around 10,000 years ago. No one really knows why that's true. All the megafauna, all the large mammals in North America, became extinct at that time, and um, a theory was proposed several decades ago that humans had arrived and humans had uh, um, hunted so many that the animals became extinct. Because they but weren't no, riding them, they were just eating them. No, they were hunting them to eat. They, mm -hmm. they were not riding them, they, and, and that, that evidence is clear that they were hunting them to eat. There's a lot of evidence all over the world, except for Antarctica, of humans hunting horses for meat. Um, but they weren't riding them here, but they brought the riding horses over from Europe about when did they, 1492, and when they got here, there were no horses. 
So they assumed that there had never been horses here, and that horses were a European product. It wasn't until about 150 years ago when paleontologists started to research the fossils of the American West that they found that not only were there numerous, numerous fossils of horses here, but there were a lot of fossils of horse species here that were never found in Europe. How did those horses look compared to the modern horse? Would we recognize them as horses? Well, I wouldn't have before I did this book. The first horses were called the Little Dawn horses, and they too seem to have spread out from North America to all over the northern hemisphere. I don't know if Dawn horses really were very plentiful south of the equator, but they certainly were plentiful north of the equator everywhere, except perhaps um, Antarctica or Arctic. The Arctic. They haven't been found in the Arctic. Um, but they were all over here, and they were tiny little animals that really looked more like dogs or um, tiny little deer or something like that. They don't look very horse-like to me. Uh, I asked a number of paleontologists why they were called horses because they look so different from how we imagine horses, and they were able to point to some very specific qualities in the skeleton and also some very specific qualities that they'd found paleontologically that do show that they are horses. What about that? But they were only a few, they, they were, maybe they were a foot high or something, maybe a little bit higher than that. What about the horse that uh, was carved 35,000 years ago in Germany that we began this conversation with? Would that, did that horse look like a modern horse? That horse was definitely a modern horse. We know something about what horses really looked at, looked like in that day and age, because they're painting some paintings of them all over Europe and Asia in the caves, and they definitely are are modern horse. Moreover, what was really fascinating to me was that. Um, maybe a decade or so ago, maybe a little bit longer, I don't remember the year, an actual horse carcass was pulled out of the muck in the Yukon. It was a frozen, preserved horse carcass from 30,000 years ago that we could actually see the color of the horse's hide and the color of the mane. It was a Palomino horse with a long, flowing mane all the way down to the ground, just like our modern horses. So although we've uh, developed all sorts of kinds of horses since, horses have remained pretty static for at least 35,000 years. I'm not, I don't think they've remained static. I think they've changed a lot, but in micro ways, in tiny little ways. I think our basic horse has been our basic horse for 4 million years at least four million years. But within that context, you do see a lot of changes as horses live in different places. You see horses that are smaller and horses that are larger, and you see horses that have uh, thicker legs and horses that are thin, have thin legs and are obviously meant to live in desert areas. So you will see some changes within that framework of horse, but the ultimate basic horse hasn't changed much. My guest is Wendy Williams. Her latest book, The Horse, The Epic History of Our Noble Companion, it is published by Farris, Strauss, and Giroux. And uh, this is WNYC, WNYC.org. You're invited to join in the conversation. Our number here is 212-433-9692. Or you can write to us on our show page at WNYC.org or on Facebook or Twitter, where our handle is at Leonard Lopate. When did humans first begin to ride horses? Do we know? 
We don't really know. We know that the earliest widely accepted scientific evidence for a close association between horses and humans comes from Central Asia from about 5,500 years ago in a place called Bataille. Researchers have found the remains of post holes and the remains of houses, little village. And in those, uh, in those little villages, they know that the people living there kept horses, and they know that the people milked the horses because they found broken pottery shards, and on the shards are, um, is residue of horse milk that they've been able to uh, study and confirm. So they, we know they were living on horse milk from mares. But they could have been keeping them the way we keep cows or pigs. Is there something about the skeletal structure of horses that makes it easy for humans to sit on them? Yes, yes. That's a very interesting, interesting question. I talked to an East German scientist about the tiny little horses that first appeared 56 million years ago, and uh, I asked him what it would have been like to ride them, and he, he explained you wouldn't have been able to ride them because they didn't um, they didn't have what he called a, a dorsal stable backbone. They were still um, running the way a border collie runs by having to move the backbone up and down. And so if you tried to ride them, he laughed and he said it would be like uh, an American cowboy trying to ride a cow. Mm. So fortunately for us, one of the many wonderful things that happened that allowed us to have horses in our world today is that their backbone changed and they uh, had a stable backbone, and they run from the legs rather than from the backbone, if you, if you know what I mean by that. So it means it's a very comfortable and convenient ride for us. From what you've said, uh, there are two separate things that happened here. Horses were domesticated, and then horses were ridden. Uh, they don't come at the same time? You know, that's a really good question. Uh, for a, for a long time, I was assuming that domestication and riding were one and the same thing. But in researching this book and in seeing how some people um, have relationships with horses that we would not call domesticated horses, but there's still relationships with them, you can see that riding horses is not necessarily associated with domestication. In fact, one of the conclusions that I came to was that dividing horses between wild and domesticated isn't really a useful idea because um, horses that are Horses can be wild, and people can bring them in for a while and work with them and let them loose again. So what do you call those horses? We went to Spain to a place in Galicia where we met several scientists who were researching um, who were researching a tiny little horse called a Garano. This Garano is very, very unique. He, he has a little mustache that he has on his face to protect him when he's eating his main food, which is an awful plant called gorse. And uh, this horse is allowed to run free in the mountains of Galicia. There are many, many, many mountains in this area that are not claimed or farmed, and the horses run free there, and when the farmers want them, they go out and they bring them in, and then they let them loose again. They don't ride them because they don't feel that they're really very good riding horses, but they just let them roam out there. And sometimes, in the old days, they used to bring the guaranas in, and they used to cut the manes and tails, and they used to sell that horse hair for artists' paintbrushes. Dogs come out of um, 
wild animals who that the the the, the milder ones wound up sticking around humans. Uh, you write that our relationship with horses should be viewed as a partnership instead of one of dominance. Now, uh, my, the first thing that occurred to me when I read that was, would a horse stuck in a tight stable stall agree with that? Would he, would he agree that he's a partner? Yes. Uh, I think it depends on the horse. <laughs> I really think it, it depends on the horse. People who have ridden horses for a long time know that horses do tend to go back to their stalls if they get loose. Um, on more than one occasion, I've been dumped off a horse out in the middle of nowhere and come all the way back and found my horse standing there right at the saw wanting to go in. So if they're used to it and they know that's where the food is and they're comfortable there and feel safe there, they may very well like it. Um, but it really depends on the horse and what the horse is used to. I think one of the things that I thought about a lot when I wrote this book was how very, very adaptable horses are. They're very much like us in a lot of ways. They're very much like dogs. Uh, they have a very, they have a lot of intellectual potential. Let me put it that way. I was taught when I was a child that the horse had a, the brain of a walnut. Uh, I wasn't taught when I, very well when I was a child. They certainly don't have a brain of a walnut. They're actually very intelligent beings. They had to be in order to survive during the ice age and find the grass and survive the lions. Um, they had to be intelligent. But uh, just as with us, how they grow up has a lot to do with what they're comfortable doing and, and what they like in life. Now, they seem to bond with humans. Do they bond with each other? Do they have a hierarchical social structure? Yes, I think it's really, really important for us to understand that horses do bond very closely. There are some states, actually, that have laws now that you're not allowed to house just one horse on a property. You have to give that horse a companion. And um, when you do that, the horse becomes a lot more comfortable. But sometimes people tend to bond very closely with horses, and that's when the really remarkable relationships come out. I wrote in my book about this one uh, older couple who came to Cape Cod, where I live, for a couple of weeks for a vacation, and they brought their horse along to the barn where I ride because they never leave their horse behind. He won't eat if they leave them, if they, if they leave him. So they brought him along, and it was just so wonderful to watch them in the morning. The woman who was a retired nurse would come over and she would bathe the horse and this whole ceremony took at least an hour he had his nostrils washed off and he had his ears cleaned and all kinds of things the husband was there all the time but he didn't ride he had a motorcycle instead of a horse and if she did decide to go out for a ride on the cape for a day she saddled up her horse and the husband went out on his motorcycle and they just went down the trails together so that bonding is really really important just as bonding is important for horses with each other they're also capable of forming those bonds with human beings. And when they do, I think the relationship can become very remarkable. What are some differences physically and in personality between horses that are born in the open range and horses that are born in captivity? Well, I think horses who are born in the open range are used to running at will, and they're used to living in the context of a band of other horses so that they're not by themselves. And I think that their minds probably develop 
quite differently because they know they have rough lives you know let's let's not romanticize this they have very rough lives out there um there are predators there are problems they have to negotiate very steep hills and where they might break a leg or hurt themselves and they also have to get along with their group and they depend on that band of horses that they are with to alert them and uh, to know where the water is to know where the food is to know what to do if a mountain lion or a wolf shows up so they are a particular you know they have a particular background that makes them sometimes not really amenable to adoption but at other times you can use that tendency of that horse that's had a childhood like that um, and play on it and have the help the horse choose to bond with you as a human being and give you the same kind of loyalty that 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 horse might have given another horse out in the out in the open range but you also write that wild horses are notorious squabblers you compare their behavior to that of a soap opera yes well horses are notorious squabblers whether they're well they're naysayers we know that (laughs) Yes, naysayers. Very funny. Actually, they are naysayers. They're, they're, they can be quite quite cranky. They can be quite cranky with each other. And the, in this barn where I was riding that I was talking to you about, <coughs> there were these two pintos who were always stabled next to each other, and the tops of their doors were always opened, and they were constantly fussing with each other. You know, you would hear this neigh, and suddenly you would turn around and see that one of the horses had bitten the ear of the other horse. And there was just this constant, ongoing fuss, 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 fuss. And how do, we know people like that. So how do they communicate human. with each other? Is it mostly through sounds? I think it's through a lot of things. It's through sound. It's through body language. Um, it's through all kinds of behavior. There have been some really interesting research uh, studies that have shown that horses pay close attention to the eyes of other horses, the direction that the eyes are looking in of, in, of other horses, and they play, pay close attention to the ears of other horses. Uh, in one particular study that was done in Europe, um, the scientists showed the horses pictures, two-dimensional pictures of horses on a wall. And these two-dimensional pictures had horses whose eyes and ears were pointing toward one of two buckets that, was pl- that were placed on the ground. And the horse, the real-life horse, looked at the photo of the horse that seemed to be looking at one particular bucket and went there to find out if there was food in the bucket <laughs> because that's what that meant. I think that's really a tremendous piece of information to know that horses are intelligent enough to read clues on two dimensions and to take the clues that they've read in two dimensions and apply it to a three-dimensional world is really a tremendous skill that we haven't known before horses could do. I think we usually assume that uh, animals uh, other than perhaps the primates aren't even able to interpret what they see when they look at a photograph. You know, you're right, and actually that's the copy, that that is the subject of the talk that I'm delivering actually at, at Rutgers next Monday night. Um, it's going to be called Can Horses Read? Celebrating the next stage in the partnership between horses and humans. And I uh, am going to be starting by talking about my favorite orangutan, um, AZ the orangutan, and his keeper, his his manservant, if you will, uh, Rob Schumacher. When I knew them 10, 10 or 15 years ago, they were down at the National Zoo in Washington, but they've since moved to Cincinnati and 
uh, have taken up residence there. The two of them have been together for a long, long time, and Rob has taught AZ how to communicate with him by using signs and signals, abstract signs, on a computer screen. And so if AZ wants some apples, he can, uh, he can touch a sign on the computer that says apples, or according to Rob, AZ can even use verbs, open for me, or pass that, or something like that. Um, uh, and. Um, AZ has become quite skilled. He can use at least 72 of these different signs to communicate. So I'm wondering why we've never asked that kind of question for horses. I think that's a tremendous question that we could be asking for horses just as a way to peer into their minds and see what they are capable of, if only we would like to know. Our guest on today's Please Explained is Wendy Williams. Her book, The Horse, The Epic History of Our Noble Companion, published by Farrah Strauss and Giroux, We're going to take a little break, and when we come back, we will be taking some of your calls and talking about why horses' eyes are different than most other uh, animals uh, uh, of their sort, or their noses, their mouths. Uh, Horses are unique in many ways uh, among ungulates, Uh, and we will, of course, be taking your calls and answering your questions that you're sending in to our website at WNYC.org. Stay with us for more. I'm back in the saddle again. Out where a friend is a friend Where the longhorn cattle feed on the lowly jimson weed Back in the saddle again I'm We're back with Wendy Williams, whose latest book is The Horse, The Epic History of Our Noble Companion, published by Ferris Strauss and Giroux. And we are taking your calls at 212-433-9692. You can write to us on our show page at WMYC.org or on Facebook or Twitter, where handle is at Leonard Lopate. And let's go to Shane from Kearney, New Jersey. Hi, you're on the air. Hey, how are you? Okay. I'm just uh, going to call and say that um, I actually had the chance for about three years to um, work with horses at a particular uh, dinner theater restaurant where you portray a medieval knight. And uh, for me, it was a tremendous learning experience uh, to feel like, it's well, a very frustrating learning experience, too. Working with horses certainly uh, teaches one patience, but once you get to a certain level of uh, riding, just the amount to be able to channel that horse's power as like an extension of your body was, for me, hands down, one of the most awesome experiences of my life. Uh, when you think, I want to go forward, and this is how fast I want to go forward, and the horse responds, that's, uh, that's something that's uh, really hard to compare to anything else. Not, not even a motorcycle, but uh, that was a lot of fun. And uh, I had a question for... Uh, well, for when, let's, let's stop and ask Wendy, how does the horse sense that? Well, I think if you have a relationship with a horse, you build up a bond with that horse, and the horse is... is uh, unless, you know, if you have a good bond with the horse, the horse is more than willing to go along with what you want, just like, you know, the way our dogs are. If you have a good bond with your dog, the dog loves to play with you. And for the horse, riding is a kind of a playing experience. 
Um, so you might squeeze your legs and move your hands forward just a little bit, and the horse might learn to interpret that as wanting to go a little bit faster, a little bit faster. Um, how you position your body on the back of a horse, how you use your legs, uh, and how you use your hands a little bit on the reins are clues that the horse learns to understand in order to interpret what it is that you want. And based on and my own right, experience with... it's a wonderful, wonderful experience. There's, there's nothing like it in the world as far as I'm concerned. Based on my own experiences on horses, horses know if you're not an experienced rider as well. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right away. <laughs> they do know that, and depending on the horse, that may or may not be a problem for you. Um, if you had a chance to spend some time with that horse and form a bond, it might work out a little bit better. Shane, you I, wanted to. I, I had an I had a, a um, an editor once, a very beloved editor, tell me that horses were stupid, and I was so shocked. I said, "Why do you think that?" And he said, "Well, they let us ride them." And then it turned out that once he had tried to ride a horse, and um, the horse had been a little frustrated with him, and he had landed in the dirt. So he did not have a good experience with that horse. He likes them now, but he hasn't ridden them since. Shane, thank you so much for calling us. You say there are lots of different species of horses, but one particular species, Hipparion, seemed to make a big impact on the evolution of horses. When and, and where did that species originate? Well, the Hipparion horse is from back in an age that we call the Miocene. Um, uh, I'm trying to remember the specific dates for the Miocene, somewhere around 12 million years ago. This was a really fascinating horse for me. We know a lot about this horse because the horse was just prolific. This is a, Actually, it's a group of species. It's not just one species, but it's a large group of species. They had three toes on the back and three toes on the front, and they were a little bit taller than the dawn horses, but they had become enough horse-like that even... Even those of us like me who are not educated in paleontology would recognize them as a horse, but they still had those three legs. People always, or, or I'm sorry, three toes on each, three hooves on each leg. People always wondered what in the world did they do with those two extra side toes? Well, it turns out that in Africa, <clears throat> in a place called Laetoli, where we have already found the footprints of uh, pre-human ancestors of ours, there were also found in that same place and at that same time frame the footprints of, of a Hipparion mare and foal. And the mare was walking along on her one toes through the ash along with her foal who was having a good time running around because that's what babies do. And at one point the baby ran in front of the mare and the mare slid and planted those two extra side toes down in, into the ash so that she would stabilize herself. So we actually got to find out finally that the Hipparians did, really did use those extra side toes when they needed to. There's vestiges of those side toes in the modern horse that horse owners do know about when you run your hand from the hoof up the leg of the horse. You can find the little vestigial remains of those toes there. Is uh, the Hipparion uh, the reason that we have words like hippodrome? No, I suspect that hip is the root word that, that's probably, to be honest with you, I don't know the answer mm. to that question, but I bet it's Greek, and that makes sense to me, and that from that Greek root, hippodrome and Hipparion probably came. Good question. I'm going to find that out. Jim from Millington, New Jersey. Hi, you're on the air. Thanks for taking my call. 
I had a question about zebras and how they fit into the modern horse picture. I remember from guns, germs, and steel that they are resistant to the sort of domestication that we've achieved with the, with the horses that we have now. That's a really good question. Zebras are very, very closely related to horses, but they're not really horses. On the other hand, people every once in a while do interbreed horses and zebras, and we do get a zebra-like horse out of that. So they are so closely related that they actually can be interbred, but they um, are not really strong enough to do a lot of the work that modern horses can do. And they uh, tend to be temperamental and not as cooperative as modern horses. Um, so uh, the zebra really isn't a good animal to companion with. Some zebras species, depending on the species, but some zebra species are independent and do live on their own and don't bond as closely as equus. Or, well, a zebra is actually an equus, but as our domesticated equus do. Don't horses have very different eating and digestive habits than other ungulates? Yes, they are very, very different in their in their digestion. And that well, the fascinating thing is, we know that they have a whole different digestive system, and they had it since the dawn horses arose, because in a place called Messel, which is south of Germany, they have found horses, the little dawn horses, and some primates, and many, many other animals that have been preserved so finely, so so carefully in the silt layers there that we can open up those silt layers and look at these fossils as though you're opening your grandmother's keepsake book and she's pressed flowers in between the pages of her book. So we've actually opened up some of those pages in Methyl and found out that there are little dawn horses there that are so well preserved that we can see the mares with foals inside them and the foals still have their little milk teeth even before they're born. But one of the other things that scientists have been able to see is that the in the modern digestive system of horses, which involves, it's called throughput digesting, and stomachs are not as important, and cecums, which is part of our digestive system uh, in horses, they're much, much bigger, and they do a lot of the, di the digesting there. The dawn horses from 47 million years ago had those as well. The horses so we know I... this is a long-standing evolutionary trait. The horse's eye also seems to be a unique feature in its evolution. Um, why do we see horses pulling carriages or on a racetrack with blinders on? Uh, do they have really good peripheral vision? The horses have amazing, amazing vision. Uh, researchers recently have studied it, and their acuity, the um, ability that they can have to see fine detail at a distance, is about two-thirds of what ours is, which is pretty good for the mammal world. Uh, other than primates, there aren't many other animals that can see that well. Um, what they have that we don't have, which allows them in some ways to see much better than we see, are a whole lot more rods in the eyes. If you'll remember, we have rods and cones in our eyes, and the cones help us see color, and the rods help us see during darkish periods. They help us with um, twilight and with dawn. Horses have a great number of these, and they're spread out 
all across the eye in a band. And Wendy, we corner. have to we have to leave it there because I want to tell people that you'll be speaking and signing books at Rutgers G.H. Cook Campus at the Institute for Food, Nutrition, and Health Building, 65 Dudley Road in New Brunswick on November 2nd at 7 p.m. And your book is The Horse, The Epic History of Our Noble Companion, published by Farris Strauss and Giroux. Thanks so much. Well, thank you.